0: Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 12th of February. This Sunday's theme is the last in a series in which we're looking at some of the teachings of Jesus that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This week's passage is about how Jesus has reinterpreted and fulfilled God's laws. All of our pieces of music today are hymns and spiritual songs and we began with Geraldine Laty's song, Lord I Come. Some notices. This Sunday's on-site service will be led by members of our congregation and all are welcome. On Tuesday, tea plus chat plus prayer will be at the home of Marjorie Jones at 2.30. All are welcome. Please contact me if you need transport. Next Saturday at 7.30pm there will be a concert of light classical music that will be in support of Christian Aid. Please come and support this. Next Sunday, our worship will be led by the Reverend Lisa Kerry, who is the leader of the ministry team of the Central Baptist Association. There will be a baptismal class starting soon. If anyone's interested in talking about Believer's Baptism, please speak to me. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 119. Joyful are people of integrity, who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me.
1: mine inheritance, Thou and always, Thou and Thou only the first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure Thou art.
0: Holy God, whose way is blameless, today as we come to worship you, we seek you with our whole hearts. We choose to walk in your way. We choose life in you. As we come into your presence right now, we are confident that you will grant us grace and wisdom to be your true servants. God of integrity, God of truth and wisdom, we worship and adore you. Jesus, who lived without sin, who lived life in all its fullness, we worship and adore you. Holy Spirit, who leads and guides us to live with honesty and sincerity, we worship and adore you. Jesus, we thank and praise you that you have taught us another way, that you have given us life in all its fullness. Thank you that when we seek you with all our heart, we are choosing that life. Thank you that you have offered us a different path, a path of truth, a path of humility, a path of wisdom, a path of integrity, a path of honesty. Through your example here on earth, you showed us how to live peaceful lives, how to reconcile with others, how to follow you and seek wholeness. Thank you that we have all of that in you. You have reconciled us on the cross, and we are truly grateful. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You've also heard that our ancestors were told You must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will or, no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one." The passage that I've just read covers quite a list of sins, to use the Bible word for offences committed against God. First of all, we heard that it's wrong to murder, although not just to kill, but even to have the thought of violence in one's heart. Then we heard that it's wrong to commit adultery although not just to commit a physical act, but also to have the thought in one's mind. Then we heard that it's wrong to divorce, despite the Jewish law giving explicit details of how a divorce might be obtained. And finally we heard how someone should not take an oath to strengthen a promise, despite, again, the Jewish law describing the correct way to use an oath. All this follows on from what we heard last week, which is that Jesus had not come to undermine the law, but rather to fulfil the law. To our ears, it hardly seems sensible to include these four legal matters murder, adultery, divorce, and taking oaths in the same category. Adultery, while not seen as a completely trivial matter, is not something now that troubles our law courts, and extramarital affairs are regarded as commonplace. Divorce is still a matter which interests the lawyers, but it's also a part, albeit a regrettable part, of modern life. The taking of oaths are also of interest to our legal system. Solicitors in England and Wales are normally also commissioners of oaths, meaning that they're qualified to hear oaths. Perhaps the oath with which we are most familiar is that made by a witness in a court of law. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's on the validity of this oath that our justice system, to some extent, depends. If a witness lies under oath, this affects the judgment of a court case, which is why perjury is treated so harshly. If you remember back, perjury was the charge of which former MPs Jonathan Aitkin and Geoffrey Archer were convicted and sentenced to prison. So, while lying may no longer be considered a major crime in today's world of alternative facts, lying under oath, or lying to Parliament, continues to be treated seriously. In contrast to the other three, murder seems a quite different kettle of fish. While lying under oath remains a serious crime and divorce is dealt with in a judicial context, murder is out on its own as a crime. The taking of another human life, the sin of Cain, is considered the most heinous crime that a person can commit. So why put it here, alongside these other, lesser matters? The answer is fairly straightforward, although it then begs another question. Murder, adultery and bearing false witness are all subjects included within the compass of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel through Moses. The practice of divorce was included in the detail of the laws that followed, but wasn't covered in the first Ten. The reason for this is that whereas the other three, murder, adultery and bearing false witness, are all sins, divorce is not actually a sin, but rather it is the mechanism by which God has dealt with sin. What I'm planning to do in this podcast is to look at the basis for what Jesus had to say on these four topics. The law was designed to manage human relationships in the knowledge that humanity is deeply flawed. And we need to understand this if we are to understand what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. The law was good at what it was designed to do, to identify good and bad behavior, and to sustain human relationships. But it could only go so far. In these verses, Jesus is pointing out the limitations of the law. In each of these statements, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And each time he begins by giving an example of what the law says before offering an alternative view. Taking the example of murder, Jesus reminds people that the law says, Thou shalt not commit murder, before going on to extend the law to say that anyone who is even angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Speaking of brothers, Genesis chapter 4 tells the story of Cain and Abel. Cain worked the land while Abel looked after the sheep. But the two brothers fell out over the way in which their offerings were received by God as Cain was jealous of how his brother seemed to be looked upon with greater favour. This caused Cain to plot against his brother and subsequently to murder him. There are some traditions outside the Bible about two brothers that suggest that Cain had other reasons to be jealous of his brother. A book written a few hundred years after the time of Jesus describes how Cain and Abel had twin sisters, Who were promised to the brothers. Cain and Abel argued over which one they should marry as both wanted the pretty one. Adam's plan was that his sons would each offer a sacrifice to God and that they would let God decide which woman they would each marry. When God sided with Abel Cain decided that he would take matters into his own hands and kill his brother so leaving the field open for him to marry the woman he wanted. Whether or not we take this additional motive seriously The point seems to be that Abel's murder was the result of his brother's jealousy. And it is this, the motive that leads to murder, that Jesus is addressing in the first of these statements. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will also be subject to judgment. The crime comes about because of the motive Jesus was suggesting that committing the crime was unnecessary to the commission of a sin. Sin comes from motivation, and motivation leads to law-breaking. Such as Jesus made a case on the subject of murder, so he made a similar case with regard to adultery and taking oaths. There was an advert for John Smith's Beer, in which a character, played by Peter Kay, is asked by his wife who would he choose if he could go out with any woman in the world and he says that she's the only woman for him, but she keeps asking him and suggests a number of fairly glamorous, famous women, but still she persists. Eventually he gives in and says, Claire from work, which of course doesn't go down at all well. The idea is that it's okay for a man to fantasise about a woman that he would never be likely to meet, but it's not okay when that woman is a living, breathing work colleague in the same office. That distinction is of course a relatively modern one, When Jesus spoke of the wrongness of lusting after a woman, he wasn't talking about a woman that one might see on TV or in a magazine. Jesus was talking about the woman next door, or the woman that sells fish in the marketplace. Although if there had been lads mags in first century Palestine, it's hard to imagine that Jesus would have been supportive of a top 100 hotties list. Adultery is not just about a physical act, but that's not really news. An adulterer having been discovered will sometimes say, it didn't mean anything, it was just sex. And to an extent that's true, because the true betrayal is the betrayal of intimacy. Intimacy can include a sexual relationship, but it's not just about a sexual relationship. Another point in the section on adultery that we need to notice is Jesus' instruction regarding how to deal with lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Unless we choose to take this instruction literally, in which case we'd see an awful lot of one-armed people stumbling into lampposts, this must be taken as an instruction to take these matters seriously. Let's look at all four of these statements and see how they all have something to say about our relationships with one another. It's not enough Just to refrain from murder, we should also treat each other with respect, and that means not speaking hateful words. It's not enough to avoid physically committing adultery. We should also not objectify other persons by seeing them as a means to satisfy our physical desires by lusting after them. It is not enough to follow the letter of the law regarding divorce. We should not treat people as disposable, and should make sure that the most vulnerable in Jesus' day that often meant women and children are provided for. It's not enough to keep ourselves from swearing falsely or lying to others. We should speak and act truthfully in all of our dealings so that we don't need to make oaths at all. I've already mentioned that the language that Jesus uses is pretty harsh. The punishment for calling someone a fool or talking to a woman while looking 12 inches lower than her eyes is to be condemned to the fires of hell. Now, I realise I might be being a little controversial, but I hope not too much, if I say that I think that Jesus was exaggerating to make a point. He was using a figure of speech that we call hyperbole. She cried buckets. My shopping weighed a ton. He literally exploded. These are all ways in which we use hyperbole in everyday speech and preachers, teachers and philosophers in Jesus' day were just the same. Every hair on your head is numbered. This is a tricky one in that there is no reason to think that God could not know how many hairs are on our heads. But the point of this statement is to demonstrate how much God cares about each one of us. It's not about how interested God is in our trichological status. The language Jesus uses in this passage is not to warn us that God is going to punish anyone who speaks harshly to another human being, nor that he's going to issue tickets to hell to those women who rushed home from church to watch Poldark. I believe that Jesus' use of words about hell here is to demonstrate that we can't hide behind the law and believe that as long as we're living as God intends, even if we snap at people, treat them like idiots and are generally pretty mean, As long as we don't actually murder someone, then we're living a good life. No, no, and no, says Jesus. You're not supposed to live like this. This is not how God intends it to be. What are we to make of Jesus' attitude towards divorce? Well, I think that we need to look at it in relation to what he had to say regarding murder, adultery, and oaths. If we're not to take Jesus' command to self-mutilate literally then the same may be true for his words regarding a person who remarries being guilty of adultery. The point of these sayings seems to be that the law should not be seen as a target to which we should aim, but rather a concession, and in some cases a minimum requirement. Divorce is not God's plan for his people, but it is a necessary concession, and to rule out remarriage is to go against the spirit of the law. Jesus came to announce and to inaugurate God's kingdom. And as part of this process, he described how we should live in God's kingdom. The coming of God's kingdom is the beginning of the restoration of paradise, the way of life that God intended for human beings. God's intention for us is that we live in peace, that our word is our bond and that when we mate, we do so for life. But we've moved a long way from paradise and we have a long way to go before we return there. In the meantime, God's law has helped his people stay close to him, but only Jesus can take us back to him. The moral imperatives that God has given are not like speed limits on a motorway, a starting point which we exceed by however much we think we can get away with. The law tells us what we have to do, but God wants us to aim higher. In his letter to Philemon, Paul asked the slave owner to take back Onesimus, his runaway slave, and to forgive him. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, Paul writes, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And that's what God wants from us. He's given us the law, but he wants more from us. The law is there as a concession, a minimum requirement, like maths and English GCSEs. But God wants more from us because he loves us, and he wants us to love him too. Whether you keep the law or you break it, you're still in the kingdom. So maybe the law isn't the way we earn God's favour or merit a place in God's kingdom. Maybe the law is, as Martin Luther and the other reformers so often stressed, the precious gift of an adoring parent given to beloved children, urging them to treat each other well. Someone has said that verses 23 and 24 of our passage suggest that God would rather have us tend and mend our relationships with one another than come to church. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Some people have interpreted this as meaning that we should refrain from communion if there is bad feeling between us and another member. But I'm not sure I know of anyone suggesting that they meet someone in Costa to clear the air on a Sunday morning rather than come to church. But if that seems right for you, then do it. But I'm going to suggest something else that you might find more manageable. Call to mind one of the relationships in your lives that is most important to you, one that's healthy and whole and good and sustains you regularly. Think about what makes that a good relationship, about why it's so important and then give God thanks for that person and the relationship that they share with you. Next, I'd like you to call to mind another relationship that's important to you, but that has suffered some damage. You don't need to analyze who was to blame for the hurt, but rather to hold that person and that relationship in prayer, offering that broken relationship to God as an offering and as an arena of God's help and healing. This should be partnered by action and so think about what action you can take to move that relationship towards greater health. God's law is not about controlling us. God has given us free will to choose to serve Him or not. God's law is not about making us realize how small we are and how big God is. Looking up at the stars whose light has taken hundreds if not thousands of years to reach us can do that. God's law is about good news That God delights in us and loves us unconditionally and so desires the best for us in and through all of our relationships with one another and of course with him. Let us pray. God who comforts as the death toll rises following the deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria and rescuers struggle to cope with the level of devastation, the brutal weather and the war. We can feel a sense of despair and hopelessness. There is so much loss and grief. We pray for everyone whose lives have been dramatically altered by this disaster. We pray for the injured, the grieving, and for those who have lost everything. As we watch the heartbreaking images of people sitting in rubble that was once their home, it's hard to see how anyone can recover from such devastation. But we continue to pray for comfort in the present and hope in the future. God who brings justice and peace. Complex geopolitical tensions around the globe have again hit the news this week between the US and China. The war of words is escalating and tensions are rising. We pray for the politicians and those who have power. Help them to see the consequences of their words and be driven by a desire for peace. Help all of us to see people from other nations, especially those very different from our own, as your children, as part of one humanity precious in your sight god who shows kindness and compassion the story of the missing woman nicola bully has taken many twists and turns this week the desperation of her family to discover what happened is mirrored by so many families across the country who are missing members of their family we pray for families who are looking for someone that they would be found safe and well and have the time and space to work through all of the complicated issues they face. We also pray for families who have to face tragic news about people missing. Help them to experience compassion and kindness, and find the support they need in a dark time. God of love, with Valentine's Day on the horizon, we are thankful for the people we love and those who love us. But we are most thankful for the everlasting, never-changing love of God for all of us. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to show us what pure love looks like. As we pray today, may we feel your transforming love. May we be the people in our communities who bring God's love to others. And as we go through our week, may we look to open ourselves more fully to the power of your love. God of hope, The Christian life asks us to transform our thoughts, feelings and behaviour. Help us today to choose your path and help us follow it even when we have to make tough choices. Thank you that we know your way leads us into the fullness of life. Help us to support each other on the road. And may we delight when we see people grow in their life of faith. Amen. When
1: I survey
2: the i
0: Our last song is John Newton's famous hymn Amazing Grace. It's sung a cappella by Whitney Houston in this version. But first a final prayer. Loving Lord, we want to use our strong feelings to bring change, our words to encourage, our gifts to heal, our eyes to see as you see, our hands to give help. Lord, we choose life. We choose you. Amen.
3: that The